All right. Good morning, everyone. We start a brand new series today. This, uh, this series is called Made to Minister. Did you know that each and every believer in Jesus Christ is already a minister? That's true. All of us are. Whether we are eight years old or 80 years old, if you are in Christ, we have been wired to serve God by serving others. Everything in our culture, though, points to the opposite. It's all about us. It's about our satisfaction and our success. Uh, it's about us getting it done and pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. And we have a very tough time in this culture realizing that the truth of who we are and how we are made comes by serving others. You know, the, uh, the reality is that we've been called to something deeper, something more, something that is worth it, something for God. We have a purpose that goes far beyond ourselves. You know, we don't have to go to seminary or a Bible college in order to reach growth or spiritual maturity in Christ. Some of us are paid to work in the church. That is true. However, every believer has been made by God to serve others. And so over the next four weeks, we're going to be talking about that. We're going to look at different aspects of ministry that we are all called to. Today, we're going to be focusing on something that most of us can agree upon, and that is the fact that we are broken. But the good news is that God loves to use broken people to advance his kingdom. He chose us, and in doing so, he receives the glory. Brokenness. And just the sound of it. It doesn't sound good. Broken things, broken bones, broken relationships, broken marriages, broken vows, broken homes, broken hearts, brokenness. It all started in Genesis in the garden. We read in Genesis 2 that God created man and placed Adam in the garden of Eden. He gave him clear instructions on what he was to do. And he gave instructions about one particular thing that he was not to do. And that was not to eat of a certain tree. God said, the day that you eat of it, you shall die. And then we read how God creates woman. And he gives Eve to Adam as his wife. And we fast forward to chapter 3 in Genesis. And the very first verse that we read, we see the serpent asking Eve very deceptively, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Notice the twist from what God said to what the snake said. Now, Eve, she knew the rules. She told the snake what would happen if she took a bite. And Satan responded to her with another lie of deception. He says, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And Eve takes the fruit. She eats of it. And she turns and she hands it to her husband, who's standing right there the whole time, and he eats of it. The first man and the first woman disobeyed God, and sin entered the world. Brokenness and death entered the picture. God did not design us or the world the way it is today. What we see is the direct consequence passed down through all these years, the direct consequence of our brokenness and our weaknesses. 
And so today we want to talk about some scriptural truths about this very fact. And I want us to take away five truths. The first of which is very, very simple and applies to every one of us. We're all broken. There are no exceptions to this. Paul wrote to one of the churches that he was ministering to, the church in Corinth. And in 2 Corinthians, he has this to say. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. You know, jars of clay were uh, something that was a very common household implement, a, a tool in, in households of first century and Paul's day. Everybody that listened to this, this letter, read this letter, or listened to him speak about this, knew exactly what he was talking about. These clay pots were inexpensive, but they were fairly easy to break. And so if you looked around any household, you would see that some of them have cracks and chips from being well used. And when a jar of clay is broken, what's inside of it doesn't stay inside it. It flows out. It trickles out. It falls out. The brokenness of our lives allow God to shine through us. When everything that we have is broken, our strength, our power comes from God and from God alone. The surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So being broken is not such a bad thing at all. If, if God allows it in our lives, he's going to use it for good and he will be glorified. Well, the second truth that we need to understand about this is the fact that in our brokenness, we are useful to God. Paul shares this truth in Ephesians in chapter 2, and he says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Jesus Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That we should walk in them. Now, my story is probably not a whole lot different than many of yours. Uh, we've, we've gone through struggles. It probably sounds exactly the same of many of you, except that I have a sword. This is a uh, Mameluke sword. And since the early 1900s, uh, this sword belongs to every officer in the United States Marine Corps. Uh, it's given to them, to them for uh, originally for weaponry, and um, now it's pretty much for, uh, for ceremonial purposes. But this sword is really a metaphor for my life. At one time, it represented good things like hard work, challenges, accomplishments, and uh, teamwork. But it also represented the opposite side of our character. For me, it may have been pride and self-sufficiency and aggressiveness and, and even anger. The sword is, is an incredible work of art. I doubt seriously if you can see that uh, with our cameras. This was crafted in Germany and it's and it's really beautiful. There's etching on both sides of the blade all the way down to the tip. It uh, has the Marine Corps emblem and, and it has the words United States Marine and next to it on one side is my name, Frank Stephen Eschman. 
But now, 38 years later, this sword has lost uh, much of its attractiveness. It is, uh, it's old, it's brittle, it's tarnished. The brass certainly needs to be polished up. The, the ivory is, uh, is getting yellowed. It's simply, it's simply getting old. After that time, I, I left the Marine Corps and went to law school. And following that, I, uh, I joined a firm. And I'd always struggled with things like pridefulness and jealousy and, uh, and being my own man and being aggressive. You know, I had increasingly wrestled with my own purpose in life. Uh, was I supposed to just go and have a wife and provide for my family and raise the kids and, and make money, plan for retirement, and that's it? No, I felt there was something so much more. Something was clearly missing from my life. So it, it's a lot like this sword made by a good creator with incredible attention to detail. But I'd been prideful and arrogant and uh, the things that I did not, did not like about myself. I started to realize my own brokenness. And, and then I met Jesus. I understood who he was. I surrendered to him. The fact that he had paid the price on the cross and he rose from the dead showed me that I could also have eternal life if I trusted in who Jesus was. God started to mold me and to change me, to transform my heart. And I felt that tug, that calling for something so much more in my life, something that would change my focus you know, uh, years, years ago, uh, it was really painful to learn that my son, as a youngster, had um, he'd taken the sword out of my office where it was tucked away in the back of the corner. And um, he was swashbuckling around in the basement. You know, I have the, uh, the support poles in the basement. And he broke it. He secretly put this sword back in the in my office. <laughs> 20 years later, while we were cleaning out the basement, I decided that this sword needed to go back in its, in its place on the plaque on the wall where it had been for years before. And I pulled this out of the scabbard. And I'll tell you, my son was an adult by that time and he was standing next to me. He had fear in his eyes. <laughs> and I'm really embarrassed to admit now that I responded in anger uh, to the likes of which I hadn't been in a very long time. This represented who I was. I was a broken man. I just asked my wife, my family. You know, they knew this fact all too well. They, they knew, though, that I was called to something greater. God intends for you and I to serve others because we learn in that that when we do, we're actually serving God. When we serve God, it looks like serving others. Paul wrote uh, in another letter in Colossians this statement, chapter 3, he says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And so that leads us to the very next truth that we find in Scripture. And that is that God is looking for people of faith who are willing to do great things for Him. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of characters in Scripture that we can, uh, we can look at. Uh, people that God used. And I wanted to, to talk about one, a character that I really like in the Old Testament. We don't talk about him much. He's Gideon. 
Gideon the farmer. Gideon enjoyed his work. He really didn't have any desire to be anything more than a farmer. No political ambitions. Uh, He didn't dream of becoming a great military leader. Yet God had a very different plan for Gideon. God was going to make a hero out of a very unlikely person. It helps to know in the story that Israel was going through a really tough time. You see, Israel, in the time of the judges, was going through cycles of rebellion and disobedience. The very last verse in the book of Judges says it all. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did uh, did what was right in his own eyes. And so this time span in Judges lasts about 300 years, started with disobedience, resulted in judgment. People began to suffer, calling out to the Lord. God would raise up a judge to lead the people back to him, and it would follow with repentance and forgiveness and revival. Just when things got better again, then people would turn away from God again. The attacks from the outsiders would come. And so for 300 years, we see that the people of Israel are cycling from faithfulness to disobedience. And we pick up Gideon's story in the midst of this. Uh, You can read about it in chapter 6. So for seven years, the Israelites had been absolutely ravaged by the Midianites. They would attack. They would destroy the crops. They would um, destroy the cattle. We find Gideon uh, at night down working in a wine press. He was threshing wheat. Now, the interesting thing about this is uh, we know that you don't thresh wheat in a wine press. A wine press is to crush fruit, to make wine. But it was below the surface of the earth, and he could hide so that the grain that he was threshing wouldn't be destroyed. Now, see, the grain, if they did it the way it was supposed to, would be out on a big, flat, rocky area. It would be crushed, and the wind would be able to blow away uh, all the chaff, and you would be left with grain of wheat. But this isn't where Gideon met the angel of the Lord. An angel of the Lord came and sat down under his father's, uh, an oak tree on his father's property. And uh, while Gideon was threshing this wheat, we know that the angel says to him, it's recorded in scripture, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Other translations say great warrior. I don't know how you would feel if you were a farmer and an angel of the Lord appeared and said, O man of valor. The interesting thing, I, we expect Gideon to say, who, me? But no, he didn't. He actually responds cynically to the angel by saying, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened? That's the why question. How many times have we gone and said, you know what? If God was good, there wouldn't be any suffering. If God was good, we wouldn't have these diseases. If God truly cared about me, I wouldn't be suffering in this way. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? Gideon really didn't agree with the title that the angel had just given to him. And he thinks about it and he responds. And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord says to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. You see, the angel did not respond to his question, why? 
He reinforced, get in, you are chosen, go do this task. Well, Gideon turned out to be a willing servant of God, but even so, he needed some assurances that it was, in fact, God who was commanding him to do this thing. So he tests God. He says, God, I want you to, uh, in the morning, have dew on everything but this fleece. And he lays down the fleece. And lo and behold, the next morning he gets up and there was dew everywhere, but the fleece was dry. You'd think that would be enough. But Gideon said, I'm going to test God again. So tomorrow morning, I'd like for it to be the opposite. I would like for there to be only dew on the fleece and nothing anywhere else. And Gideon wakes up and he had to wring water out of the fleece. There was no moisture anywhere else. But now God has a test for Gideon. He tells Gideon, I want you to destroy the altar of Baal. This was a pagan god. And Gideon did that even though it would set him apart from his father. He would be set against his father. Well, then God tested Gideon once more by asking him to defeat the enemy, the Midianites and uh, other folks in the area. And so Gideon goes and assembles an army of 32,000 men. And then he learns that the army he's supposed to attack, the enemy he's supposed to destroy, is 135,000 strong. For an old Marine Corps officer, I wouldn't have wanted those odds. But Gideon says, or the God says to Gideon, you know what? Here's what I want you to do. Out of your 32,000 men that you've raised, anybody who's afraid, I want you to send them home. And so Gideon did. And he was left with 10,000. 22,000 of those numbers were fearful. They felt weak in the circumstance, and God sent them home. He has 10,000. Well, the next, uh, the next thing God says is, now I, I really need you to do something more. I want you to take these 10,000 men and ask every one of them to go to the water hole, go to this lake and drink water out of this. But every man who gets down is on his hands and knees and sticks his face in the water and drinks, laps like a dog, I want you to send him home. But those men who go and cup the water with their hands and ladle it and drink, those are the ones I want. Gideon was left with 300 men. 9,700 of them didn't pass this test and were sent home. Can you imagine what Gideon must have been thinking? There's 135,000 and I've got 300. You see, God didn't want Gideon to be able to claim the credit for defeating the enemy. God wanted to show Israel his power and his glory. And God used Gideon to accomplish the mission. Gideon proved himself to be a faithful, a mighty warrior, a strong leader of men. In fact, the the, uh, author of Hebrews in chapter 11 includes Gideon in the hall of faith that the men of great faith that were pointed to as examples. Gideon became that man of valor and his willingness to serve God, Gideon was renowned as the greatest judge of Israel and he led the people back to God. Well, God is still looking for Gideons today. Men and women of faith are willing to step out and to do great things for God. What great thing is God asking you to do? What can we do for God? You see, the story of Gideon and his faithfulness shows us that God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And God receives the glory. But we still have one problem. 
If I ask every person in this room, we would probably admit to being fearful about some things. We would admit to our weaknesses, and we think that that would get in the way of us doing something great for God. The fifth truth of Scripture that I want us to see today is the fact that in our weaknesses, we will find God's strength. One of the uh, the things that I love to do, and I get the privilege of doing this as the life care pastor here at FBC, is something we call pastoral counseling. And so on a regular basis throughout every week, I get to meet with folks who are struggling with this or fighting with that. Um, they're, they're finding everything from physical to mental to relational challenges in their life. And so I, uh, I spend time pointing people to Jesus, offering them help, and if I can, offering a next step, just looking past themselves to take one more step in Christ. And I oftentimes get to ask things like, um, how's your time in the Word? How, what's your prayer life like? Uh, are you attending worship? Things that, uh, that we do in our spiritual life to grow us. How are you doing in community with other believers? Maybe in a small group in this church, perhaps out in the community. One of the areas that I, that I get to ask about all the time is, how are you serving? What, what are you doing for God? And it's here that I find a great paradox People often tell me about circumstances where God has used them. And I get to hear great stories. In the midst of their brokenness, I hear incredible stories about what God is doing. And yet at the same time, even many of those people will say, "Ah, serving just isn't a regular part of my spiritual life. Why wouldn't we want to serve others when we experience God's blessing, His peace, His joy? I'll tell you why. It's one of Satan's great lies in our lifetime. Satan tells us things that simply are not true. He twists the truth. Even though people agree that they find satisfaction in serving God, many give me those reasons. Sometimes I hear, oh no, I can't, I can't do that. I, uh, there's no way I could ever do that. You don't understand. I'm just not good enough. There's other folks around here who could do this a whole lot better than me. I, I can't do that. What's the basis of that? Why don't they measure up in their own eyes? They're fearful. They fear being looked down upon in some way, being judged. Who among us hasn't felt that way? See, we fear the very thing that Satan has been planning in our minds since the time each of us were very young. We aren't good enough. Now, from other people, I've I've heard the statement that I'd love to serve, but I just don't have the time. You don't understand what my life is like. I, I have got commitments. You know, it's so true. We have work, we have household, we have kids, we have schedules, we have ball games, we have unbelievable commitments. Our calendars are so crowded that we're unable to realize the blessings that come from serving others. Occasionally I hear a third category, and, and this one really hurts when I, when I hear it. But I'm also getting really close to home with this in my own life. I hear a statement like, no. I just don't want to. I don't care. Somebody else can do that. You know, Satan plants these statements uh, in our minds and he says, you're not good enough. You have too much going on. Other things are more important. There's lots of other people could do that. Folks, we all have weaknesses. We all have fears and overcommitment and the demands of this world are keeping us from fulfilling God's purpose in our own lives. Let's think of some of the people that we read about in Scripture 
Very few of them were, were uh, individuals free of dysfunction. Yeah, Peter denied Christ three times. Martha, she worried about everything. John the Baptist, he was a bug eater. Jonah, he ran away from God. David was an adulterer, and he's also a murderer. Rahab, she was a prostitute. Samson, he was a womanizer. Moses, now he's a murderer too, and, and he stuttered. Joseph was abused by his brothers, and he was accused of a crime he didn't commit. Noah was a drunk. Jacob was a liar. How about you? The interesting thing about all of this is that even in this, even in those dysfunctions, disabilities, brokenness, weaknesses, God uses every one of them to show his glory. We have all been made to serve, every one of us. We've been made to minister to others. But unfortunately for too many of us, we are missing out on the blessings that come. You know, when we look at all of us in this room, I I have no doubt that... uh, uh, we can point out weaknesses of people sitting around us, our family, our friends. We live life with them. We know that. But no one knows the weaknesses in yourself as, as good as you do. We can take an example from Paul. Originally Saul, before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and was convicted and faith, uh, found faith and trust in Jesus and became a new man. Paul, well, he was a persecutor of followers of Christ. But then Jesus decided he was going to use this man, highly unlikely, to reach the Gentiles throughout the world. One of the greatest evangelists uh, that we read about in Scripture. But in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, we we read a list of things that Paul reveals uh, to the church in Corinth about, about how he was broken, about how he was weak. And we learn that he was forced into labor, that he was put in prison many times. That he, uh, he sustained countless beatings with injuries, oftentimes leaving him near death. Once he was stoned, he was shipwrecked. He was in constant danger from things like rivers and from robbers. He was in danger from people that he knew, his own people, but also from those he didn't, the Gentiles. There was danger in the city. There was danger in the wilderness. Uh, there was in, he was in danger from people he called brothers who were false. He had lack of sleep, he didn't have enough water, he was cold, he was helpless, and above all else, he had anxiety for the churches that he was trying to lead. Paul admits that he was weak, and he continues on in chapter 12, and he says, and you know what, I I had this thing, this this thorn in my side, and I, I pled with the Lord to take that away from me. I know it was a messenger of Satan to harass me. We don't know what that thorn in the side was. Uh, maybe a physical disability, maybe a speech impediment. We just don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us, but we know this. God responded to him. He says, I pled to, my, to the Lord. We know who his Lord is. And Jesus responds, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. When we are weak, God is strong. His grace is sufficient. So in our brokenness, uh, God's grace lets us live a life filled with joy and purpose. 
The Bible teaches us that God uses our brokenness to mold us into the kind of people that he desires. Loving one another, serving one another, God can use our weaknesses. And he does incredible things to show his power through us. For if we were not weak and broken as we are, we might claim the credit that belongs to God. You know, one of the purposes for this series is over the next four weeks to point out some areas um, where you might, uh, you might fit in as a, as a servant. You might find opportunities that uh, you never thought existed around this church. And I'm so thankful the, uh, the man who made these slides, the Made to Minister slide, it's, it's incredible. And uh, the attention, the detail that that man put into the slide, I really appreciate. But you don't even know who he is. The folks that are serving behind in the video and the lights and the sound and in the parking lot and in the welcome center, we, we don't know who these people are. But they are joyfully serving the Lord and finding purpose in their life. We have people who are uh, working, taking care of our grandkids in the nursery and uh, other men and women who are down with our children in the, in the mountain coming alongside of them, lifting them up, loving them in a small community that children start to experience from a very early age. And those are just some of the things that are happening in the walls of this church. There are incredible things happening in this community by people that God has called right here on our own uh, congregation. Uh, we, have, uh, we have a little, little uh, announcement coming for one of these ministries that's represented um, the, uh, the Lunch Buddies. There's net reach. There are, there are a number of things that reach to other countries as well. We have a team in India right now, all serving. You see, there's something that Jesus wants us to understand. And we read about it in Matthew 25. And he's talking about people who go out and uh, feed the hungry and clothe the naked and visit people in prison. And Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, as you did it, to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Folks, when we serve others, we are serving God. We have opportunities right now in, uh, in the life care realm, in men's ministry, and uh, in the family financial ministry area. For instance, the life care network is something that you, you don't hear about much, but it exists for men and women to come along, people in the hospital or who are struggling perhaps a mentor, short-term or long-term, a one-on-one type of relationship, just walking with folks, praying with them. We have life care groups that happen in specific need areas like divorce care or grief share when somebody has lost a loved one or boundaries uh, to help uh, others make godly decisions, when to say yes, how to say no, single and parenting, anger management, the list goes on. We're simply looking for people with a heart to serve others in that particular area as facilitators, not as teachers, but as facilitators, just to simply love one another. We have those opportunities available in the family financial ministry, not only an educational program to show others about how to steward money in God's way, we also have something called Pocket Watch. And if you've known anybody that has trouble budgeting and, and handling their own finances, we match them up with someone who does it well and can help prepare a budget, walk through them on a monthly basis, pocket watch. 
in the marriage ministry, we have re-engaged for folks to enrich uh, where they're at right now in their marriages. Merge and two-on-two, which are premarital uh, ministry counseling programs. Foundation Groups is coming for uh, men and women, for married couples who've uh, only been married a short period of time to come together in small groups, just simply share life together. And a new one that I, I'm uh, really anxious for folks to be, uh, to be uh, hearing about is something called married people. And it will apply to any couple who is married in our congregation. I'm really anxious for you to hear that. In the men's ministry, we have need for Bible study teachers and small group leaders, people to serve within the, the repair ministry that we have, men of James. You see, we take the, we, we take the serving of widows and orphans uh, seriously. And that ministry helps do simple things in a household to fix it and to repair it for folks who can't do it. I want to invite you that if if anything in this message has stirred your heart to take the next step and investigate opportunities to serve, perhaps in one of the areas that I've mentioned, you can go outside. There's a table in the atrium. You'll see it. It says Made to Minister on the TV. And on that table are uh, a few things that are written down on paper that you can take with you that are summaries of ministries. And there's also another on the clipboard uh, piece of paper where you can leave your name and phone number, your email, and we can have the opportunity to, to talk in some detail about what that might look like. You may have questions that you need answered before you can even make a decision. Give me your name and your number. I promise you that I'll call you this week and we can have a conversation about what that looks like. Well, I'd like us all now to... Uh, close our time together in prayer and, uh, and just to consider how God would be using us. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are good. We thank you so much for your provision in our lives. You care so deeply. You love us. And Father, you have chosen us to join you, to join your Holy Spirit in expanding your kingdom. Father, I pray for every individual uh, in this church who is already serving. I pray for your uh, continued wisdom for them and that you give them courage and energy to continue to stay the course. Father, for those who are considering that, perhaps even for the very first time or getting re-engaged in serving others, that you would, uh, you would just give them great peace. You would show them exactly how you wish them to serve. For Father, you have equipped us all with certain gifts that come from your Holy Spirit. You've You've given us natural talents and abilities, Father. I pray that you would open doors uh, for folks as they consider how they may be used by you to advance your kingdom and to give you glory. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.